What does healing mean to you? I think it's transformational. I think it's going from feeling like there is no hope to feeling like I can do this and I'm in a good place and people love me and I can love people. Voices, the mental health podcast, raising unanswered questions, sharing unanswered prayers. We are faith-based, peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. I am Tony Roberts. I am Eric Riddle. And we are Revealing Voices. Tony, it is episode 20. Yes, it will be Thanksgiving Day as you re- listen to this. If you listen to it on Thanksgiving Day, it's when it will be released. Yes, yes. So uh, you can gather uh, around the Thanksgiving Day dinner, watch your football, and then settle into a nice long episode of <laughs> Revealing Voices. So we, we don't necessarily encourage you to share your diagnosis with your extended family although it would make for table. it would make for a very good dinner time conversation Could yeah you? yeah i know many people display their diagnosis on thanksgiving day whether they discuss it or not right it's uh it's a good day for for mental illness let's let's <laughs> to shine i'm not depressed it's just the trip the fan <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love Thanksgiving. It, it's a nice time. I do too. I'm going to be in Pittsburgh with my in-laws. It's actually the first time I will celebrate Thanksgiving with them. Yeah, and I will be in Cincinnati with my special friend's family. Yeah. So tell me about your trip to San Francisco, Eric. Right. At the end of October, I went out to San Francisco. It was a very good trip. I stayed with my friend Ben Cornell and his family. I was out there for the Stability Network. The Stability Network is an organization working to empower uh, people in the workforce to share their stories publicly about their mental health diagnosis as a way of normalizing mental health conditions, as showing that people can live successfully in workplaces and be, you know, people trying to really be on the leading edge of taking that risk of disclosure and part of this time was talking about the risks and talking about how there's a lot on us as people advocating to not make it look easy disclosing is serious business and you know the reality of um, stigma is that by disclosing there'll be certain people who who do treat you in in ways that might not be the most healthy it, it right. relationships. And I think it's important for us on this show to make that statement also. Mm-hmm. You know, Tony, you and I, we are public, more public than most yep. about our diagnoses. Uh, but we also respect people who do not want to reveal that part of themselves publicly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe we need to have an episode sometimes about discernment on 
when and how to disclose. I think that would be very, very helpful for a lot of people. Yeah, that, that's a big part of the stability network. And I'm really glad they touched on that this time. Maybe we could have somebody from the stability network address that subject. Absolutely. Sometime with us. Yeah. They would be well qualified. I came back from San Francisco pretty fired up. I'm very happy to be in this organization. And it just confirmed, you know, that it, what an honor it is to be among these people who are taking these steps. And then last night we celebrated our a special occasion. We celebrated a four-year anniversary for our faithful friends uh, mental health support group, weekly support group, now going in well over 200-week sessions. Yeah, 200 weeks. 200 weeks. That's a long tenure. Yeah, every Tuesday night, 7 to 8.30. Living room, 14th and Sycamore. Yeah. Columbus, Indiana. If you're in the greater central, <laughs> south central Indiana Mid Midwestern <laughs> United States. If you're in town doing business with Cummins, feel free to stop by yes. Tuesday at 7. We had uh, soups. We had chili and lentil and yeah. chicken chili and other soups. Cheesy potato. Cheesy potato. Persimmon pudding. I made a 150-year-old recipe of, of persimmon pudding that I found on the Indie Star uh, website. Little bit of a dis- dispute there without the uh, whipped cream. I, I know. There I, was, I did disappoint some people. Yeah, there there were some unhappy customers. <laughs> but we had a great turnout. We had people who were new. We Once again, yeah. loved ones were invited. With the loved ones, I opened up. You know, there was probably eight people there. And I, I said, you know, caregivers bear their own burdens uh, of dealing with people who are dealing with some tough symptoms. And I, I said, you know, why don't you share... Um, some of your strategies for doing your own self-care as a caregiver. Speak to how you recharge your batteries, how you have a healthy distance from that relationship when, when you're really, when it's really stressful for you. You know, what kind of networks do you have? How do you lean on your faith to, to support your own personal healing when you're dealing with a loved one with mm-hmm. an illness? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there was some good sharing. A few, a few tears were shed. It was really good to see to see everybody mm-hmm. um, sharing, you know, what works for them. Yeah. And I have some big news. Today, I signed on the dotted line that I will be a pilot pioneer in a program of a local church. I will be the faith and mental health advocate. And basically what that means is I'll keep doing what I've been doing and I'll get paid for it. <laughs> and, and I will be rooted within a particular body of Christ that right. there will be accountability and growth strategies and training. And I think it's just going to be a win-win all the way around. I'm really looking forward to it. Shout out to uh, St. Peter's Lutheran Church. Very excited. Tony, this is a big deal. Yeah. I, I really want to applaud you. I'm, I'm prepping my hands here. This is an important uh, step in your own ministry and in the ministry of um, the church, the big church. I know St. Peter's and leadership there is uh, ambitious. And, and they, Very much so. And they want to make an impact in Columbus, but, but well beyond. They found a, a really good man for the job. So I just 
you want to embolden you and encourage you that they've got an ideal person to be the first in this role for them. Thank you. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the challenge. And some of our listeners are going to be curious to, to hear how it goes. Yeah. Because there, there are other churches that I'm sure are trying to figure out how to make this kind of thing mm-hmm. part of their, their formal paid ministry. You know, it's uh, the question has come up, you know, have, has there been such a position at other churches? And I'd be interested in hearing uh, and researching, that's one thing I will do, uh, what uh, other churches have done in this arena. I do know in Seattle, Washington, the University uh, Presbyterian Church hired some years ago David Zucker to be a right. uh, mental health advocate and met with David, in fact. So, episode, Susan Lockwood. Susan is an author. Her new book... Kick to the Curb. Being released... Oh, December 4th. This is a preview of her book. We've both already read it, you know? Yes. We got early copies, and she is uh, Dr. Lockwood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but her, her writing is... Uh, down to earth, yep, and and really speaks to the heart of the matter. And I, I think you'll hear her passion in this interview. She has great passion and compassion for youth, especially who are incarcerated and in need of uh, second chance, who need to be restored to society. Yeah, very good. We have a special guest with us, Dr. Susan Lockwood. Yeah. Someone I've met in a very special way. Yeah. She's going to talk about um, her recent book and her career and in correctional education. Quite a career. I, I finished her book today. Yes. What would you think? I really liked it. I think Susan's pretty down to earth. Yeah. Very accessible. I'm very glad to, to finally meet you, Susan. Thank you. I hope this is the first of many. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, so, so your book, Kick to the Curb, and the subtitle has changed. What is the... Where Policy Has Failed Our Most Vulnerable Youth and the Fight for a Better Tomorrow. In yes. other words, Google Analytics. <laughs> it's Google Analytics, absolutely. Yes. But, but the actual, the idea came from for the book. Um, in my job as a school administrator for the Department of Correction, um, I... I provided oversight to facilities all across the state of Indiana for juveniles. And I spent a lot of my time advocating for resources for them and Mm -hmm. talking to a lot of different state agencies about different things. And just one day, I just was very, very frustrated after, again, having a a really long conversation. And I hung up the phone and um, just said out loud, once again, they just get kicked to the curb. I was just said that right. to myself in my cubicle, in my office cubicle in the state government center. And what age um, people are we talking about here? We're talking about kids who are in junior high, high school age, primarily high school. Okay. Um, so um, be- between legally in Indiana, the, the age of 12 to just under 22, just before they turn oh, okay. 22, they can be incarcerated in a juvenile facility. But in reality... Um, kids who are over the age of 18 don't typically, you don't mm-hmm. see them past that for the most part. Right. And um, it's, it's really unusual to get a lot of very young kids, um, but we do have some junior high aged kids. 
Mm-hmm. So anyway, I um, that whole idea of being kicked to the curb, I wrote those words on a post-it note, and I pinned it to the wall of my cubicle, in my, off, my office cubicle, and that's where those words stayed for three years. Um, mm-hmm. Just a daily reminder that I was working with kids who were constantly being marginalized. And so, and I know that's kind of something that a lot of people don't really understand because most of the time it's just, you know, they're juvenile delinquents, they get what they deserve, all of that kind of thing. But my, my book really kind of tries to shed some light on their circumstances and their stories because there's always, you know, you always have, um, different sides to everything. And as much I've, I've been the victim of a crime and I know what it's like to be a victim. Mm -hmm. Um, but then when I work with these youth all the time, I also realized that there's, they're also victims. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to write that book and tell that story so that people could maybe have some kind of better understanding of what that's all about. You've shared a little bit about your work history, but what are some things you've done? You've had a journey. Um, well, I started out as a music teacher in public school, um, started out in Newcastle, Indiana, Blue River Valley School Mm -hmm. Corporation. I taught 17 years in uh, both high school and elementary school, spent a lot of time working with kids who had special needs because lots of times when kids are identified to get special ed services, they get assigned to music class in high school, Mm -hmm. or they always come to music class and art class and PE when you're in elementary schools. As I was teaching music, I um, went back and got my license to teach special education. And then I had to do a practicum, which when you're in grad school, you don't student teach, you do a practicum because it sounds way more, (laughs) way, way more cool than student teaching. So I did my practicum at the Indiana Boys School in Plainfield, and that was during the summer. The next spring, they had an opening, and they remembered me from doing my practicum and called me, and I interviewed and got the job. So I mm. st- then I, that kind of was my transition from being a music teacher to working with youth, incarcerated youth. Mm. One of the things about the book, at the very beginning, you're talking about poverty. Right. Right, and how so many kids in poverty come from backgrounds where there's not a lot of family support right you contrast that with your own upbringing where your parents were foundational right in in your experience and how a lot of us assume that normal is two parents or at least one parent who's very engaged right but your experience with a lot of these kids was that there is no stability. There, there really isn't. And especially if you are a youth of color, it's very likely that you have a parent or parents that are incarcerated or have been incarcerated at least part of your life. A lot of these kids are coming from environments where they've either experienced violence personally, they've watched violence, they've watched the adults in their lives using drugs and abusing drugs, committing crimes, those kinds of things. And that's their normal. Part of the time they're in homes where they might be the sibling that makes the food for the rest of the siblings, or they are basically trying to avoid the adults because that's the only way that they can feel safe because they don't want to be in the way or be a target. Their normal is way different from the normal that I experienced growing up. So... Right. It took me a while to really understand that impact of why these kids come to public school and they're not really ready to learn. And, you know, when I started really thinking about it, it was one of those things where it's like, why do you behave like this? 
And as I got older and became more of a, a veteran teacher, mm-hmm. I started thinking it, the question needs to be what happened to you that causes you to behave like this? And you really t- t- to try to really hone in on that and try to understand the kid and um, just try to love that child unconditionally, which is sometimes very hard because they are usually the most unlovable because they're trying to protect themselves. They've been let down so many times by the adults in their lives. Mm -hmm. So um, it really becomes one of those things where it's hard for them to learn because they're just trying to survive. These are very key factors, as you note in the book, resulting in being kicked to the curb. The kind of social, economic, and other factors. There's also some policy factors you mentioned that right. conspire. Right. Um, so right around 2002, when No Child Left Behind came into law, that was a big deal because I had just started teaching in the juvenile correctional facility. And so, you know, most high school kids, it's just normal. You go to school five days a week, all day long. You know, that's, that's what you do. Well, with these kids, they went to school for half a day four days a week. So right right away, they're behind to begin with. Then they come to school in a correctional facility, and they don't get the same amount of instruction that they would have been getting had they been on the streets. Then they don't have the same resources, and they don't, they don't have the teachers with the correct licenses. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, I write about how it was such a struggle to get permission to hire a math teacher to teach math because... Right. That's just, it's like, why do we need to do that for these kids? You know, they're not expected to learn anything was basically what I was told. And also you mentioned that in the book, when schools tried to meet the standards of No Child Left Behind, there were some unintended consequences. Exactly. So you have school administrators who are really trying to meet all of these accountability measures because they're getting, they're, they're getting report cards. Mm -hmm. The school is getting a report card from the state and it's published in the newspaper so if I'm the su- superintendent of that school corporation, you better believe I want to have a good grade because that imp- that's, impacts my entire community. Right. The economic impact of that as well, having people moving in and out of your district based on the, the schools that are there. So that's a big deal. Kids are great, or schools are graded on how high their attendance percentages are, um, what their graduation rates are, how they do on standardized testing, all of these things. Well, Kids who are at risk of failing have negative impacts on every single one of those benchmarks. I explain how um, school corporations and, and administrators look for ways to uncount those kids, like not include those kids in mm-hmm. those accountability measures because it's, it has a negative impact. And so eventually these kids just keep getting kind of pushed out further and further and further until finally they just give up. Yeah, it's You have it's, a great representation on your cover. There's a picture of a family holding hands and traveling along up a, a little hill and then uh, the last child is uh, almost fallen away and mm. you can barely see this figure as he she tumbles from a, a ledge. It's really a quite graphic depiction of how those children who are a part of our families become invisible yep they just become invisible yeah i'm not really that knowledgeable about the prison system the one thing that i feel from like a social justice perspective is that when you have to go in as a child or an adult you should be given all the resources necessary so that when you have served your time you can 
come out and have a shot at living the life right. of anyone else who well, you... has been in school. You should be given the resources to be able to work, to right. get a degree, those you sorts of to. things. And the thing is, that's exactly right, because people think that you know a person goes to prison, adult, juvenile, whatever, you're never going to see them again. Well, the fact is, like 98% of them, for real, 98%, come back. I mean, and the we ones, want them to. Yeah, and we want them to. It's not like they're going to be locked up forever. But so, so while they're in prison, look at it this way. While they're in prison, they're a tax liability. Okay, yeah. we're paying for that. All right, so even if you take away the social justice part of it, if, if you just look at it this way, so if I'm paying for you to be in prison every day, it makes a lot of sense for me also to try to make sure that there is programming in place that's going to help you become successful. So Absolutely. To, so that there's some kind of a rehabilitation. Maybe you get some drug treatment. Maybe you get some anger management courses. Maybe you get your high school credential mm -hmm. or you learn a trade of some kind so that at the end of the day, you come out and you're, you become a tax-paying citizen right. because you have a job you're contributing to your community, and your community is safe mm -hmm. that way because that's what we're doing. But instead, people have the opposite view. Many people do that. It's like, well, they don't deserve any of this. They've committed a crime. And of course, they've committed a crime, and of course, they need to be accountable for that. But at some point, they become, they're, they're accountable, and then let's move on and let them continue right. to at least have a positive life trajectory. That's so right. that's really critical. Because really, if we leave persons who are incarcerated as liabilities, we're going to be the ones paying. You, yeah. you had a quote about yeah. how much it costs a taxpayer right. to maintain incarceration and then even beyond that if right. they're not rehabilitated. Right. And so it's like, you know, the, the old commercial, you can pay me now or pay me later. But, you know, we're talking about human beings. I don't want to be, I mean, I don't want my worst... Thing that I've ever done be like the thing that defines me the rest of my life you right. know like let's take a minute and come back to where like meet you meet me where I am and help me move beyond that to something that's better absolutely and that's what I think as a social justice issue I think that's we need to do that and then it becomes a win-win for everyone. One of the things we hear about is that the prison system is the number one mental health care provider maybe even in the country period in the there, country there are 10 for every one psychiatric bed uh you know person in a psychiatric care facility there are 10 in prison yeah <clears throat> so what's been your experience of seeing how the mental health care system is integrated within the detention centers in well, prisons? we do have mental health services inside prisons. Not enough for the amount of people who have mental illness that are incarcerated. And unfortunately, a lot of people, when they've committed their crime or become involved in with the justice system, their behavior has actually been a function of their mental illness. They might have done something while they were manic or while they were, you know, right. part, part of their schizophrenia or whatever. Or when the police encounter them, they don't realize that they have a mental illness and that's the reason they're behaving the way yes. they are. And so then they get arrested and, you know, they become part of the system. That definitely is a problem that I know I've seen different agencies provide training 
in that regard to mm-hmm. their police officers. And honest, honestly, police officers, they ha- their, their number one thing is to keep everyone safe. And so if they're right. encountering somebody who is not able to control himself or his behavior or herself or her behavior, the first thing they're going to try to do is is try to bring stability to that situation or mm-hmm. de-escalate it in some way. And so they are, that's, they're doing their job. But I, I applaud agencies who really spend time trying to train the officers you know, about this because sometimes it's not that they need to be arrested. They just need to be taken to a place where they can, that, that can be addressed. You know, the World Health Organization just recently recognized World Health Day. The focus this year was on uh, youth and mental health in a changing world. And one of the statistics that uh, they came out with was that fully one half of people who are at some point in their lives diagnosed with a mental illness had were symptomatic before the age of 14. And with what you're saying in terms of those who are incarcerated and how difficult it is to to integrate them into the program, I would imagine you've it's, seen and maybe yeah, have stories of people who have have had a, a tough time adjusting to incarcerated life with mis- mental illness. Right. And I, I mean, I think not maybe a specific story, but just like the examples of kids who can't really function in that general population. I think it's important too to note, so you have maybe a, a concentration of people who have a mental illness who are incarcerated because of just you know mm-hmm. being put in prison instead of getting the treatment they needed. The other thing, it's the same when you talk about kids who are identified for special education services. Like we have in our, uh, one of our facilities, over between 50 and 60 percent routinely of our students are identified to receive special education services. You think about all the high school kids in the state of Indiana and the barriers that they encounter as they're going through to finish their their high school diploma and you, you put them all in a funnel and then you keep funneling through. By the time they get to being with us where they're going to school inside the Indiana Department of Correction, these are kids who are just incredibly needy. Mm-hmm. Um, they have failed in school for various reasons. They have um, they have huge amounts of trauma that they've experienced. Um, they don't have the skill sets or the strategies to know how to function and to deal with what they're trying to deal with. And so, very much so, I can I can totally understand why so many people as adults who have been diagnosed with a mental illness, I can totally believe that it began early on because they might not have had those supports that helped teach them strategies so that they could be more um, more on a, a positive trajectory. I think that a lot of people who become you know, chronically depressed, things like that, it's because of having to constantly be in this vicious cycle of barriers. Right. I want to uh, move to the question of faith. You and I talked earlier about how there's uh, a distinction between faith and the the moral obligation. You want to say more about what you see in terms of faith, moral obligation, and, and serving? Well, I think um, when it comes to moral obligation, I think people, there are a lot of good people who work with 
people who are incarcerated. There are a lot of good people who work with youth who are incarcerated um, or kids who are at risk who haven't gotten to the point where they're incarcerated. But all of these people who, who work with individuals who are in these types of circumstances, I'm sure that they feel that some kind of passion about it or some kind of moral obligation to do something to help. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to get burnout because it is exhausting. Um, like I said, some of these kids on purpose try to be unlovable <laughs> because right. it's a protective thing. Mm -hmm. And so it can be very, very exhausting and it's easy to get burnout if you if you do that. And I believe that. So when you talk about having some kind of or feeling a moral obligation to do the right thing and help, that's one thing. But then if you think about it the other way where your faith, which is how I believe, I, I believe that I have hope in my Savior, mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, and that he gives me that hope and I can always see beyond whatever circumstance I have, even how hard it is, and even if it's hard for me to see it at the time, I, I've always had somebody help point me in that direction and, and remind me of it. And I think that it helps me keep from getting burnt out because I keep going back to everybody needs to have hope. Everybody needs to have a person who is strong enough to help, help you set goals and see beyond your current circumstances and the only way that you can do that is, in my opinion, is long-term, you have to have that hope in your Savior. Yeah. And, and in the environment that you're in, I mean, a lot of these kids are not going to have a lot of hope. So not it's almost all. like in the education process, you're trying to convey hope to them. Right. You've got a good story in the book about the teacher who is uh, – teaching on the Emancipation Proclamation, yes, which could be a, a dry subject. Probably for many. But the way it was taught in, right. in this context was excellent, if you'd want to share that story. Yes. Um, so it was one of those things. I was actually observing the teacher, and uh, you know, you have kids who could care less about any of it, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like, how do you get them to pay attention or think that that's even important? So actually the teacher started talking about Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. and talked about the kinds of issues that were important to the kids and made it very relevant so that they started, you know, engaging in the conversation. And then he took the text of the Emancipation Proclamation and said, here, let's look at this vocabulary and let's talk about these words and how do these words align with what we just talked about with Black Lives Matter. And then, okay, now let's take it a step further. And how does this um, speak to equal rights? And so basically led them down the path of why this is still relevant today. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, I mean, these, these are kids who are identified for special ed services. They're in that particular classroom because they needed additional help. They're talking about grade level vocabulary. They're talking about all the things they're looking and analyzing the text. Those are all things that they're very capable of doing. It really made an impact on me because mm -hmm. I had um, earlier when I first started working with these kids back you know, in 2001, I had people telling me, well, these kids can't learn. Nobody expects them to learn. It doesn't matter what you do with them. And that just broke my heart. 
And so when I could see that, there are people who really are thoughtful in how they present the content so that it's relevant, right. makes a difference. Oh my gosh, there's so much that these kids can do. I want to also highlight another story in your book that uh, deals with preventive measures, and that is the story of Rose. You want to share that? Yes. So Rose was, um, her father was incarcerated. It was early in her life when he became incarcerated. He was addicted to drugs, and while he was under the influence, he committed a crime. So he was in prison for quite some time, actually through her elementary and middle school years. And she was with her mother, who was a high school, not a high school graduate. And so her mother was left to support her and her older sister. That's not a situation that is easy. And so, um, but it was it was really interesting. I, I talked with Rose about all of this and she said that, because now Rose, fast forward, she's teaching inside a prison classroom and helping adult males prepare for the high school credential to take right. their test. And she actually has the highest, her students have the highest pass rate. You know, I mean, she is just amazing. And she's 24 years old. Wow. So you talk to Rose and you say, wow, how do you, how do, you do this? How did you not become part of this system that, that your father was in? Because the, the odds were stacked against you right from the start. And she just spoke of, of how she used to hang out with her best friend and spend um, time with her best friend's family. And that gave her hope because she saw that her circumstances didn't always have to be the same, that other people had different circumstances. Right. So she, I thought that was really mature to be fourth grade, third grade, and be able to say, wow, this is really good. I, I need to be around other people and see what it can be like. Then she spoke about a teacher that she had who was in middle school, helped her set a goal and say, you, couldn't, you could get a college scholarship. Nobody had ever talked to her about going to college or even she never even dreamed that she'd get to go to college. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to her, even graduating from high school would be a big deal, which it was. She talked about that and how that gave her hope. And then when her father came home from prison, she had started high school and he still was addicted to drugs and he was still selling drugs and he was still buying drugs and he would often take things from the home and sell them like the TV or things, whatever. Right. One day she came home from school and found that he had been in her personal things and taken some coins and things that had been given to her by her grandfather and sold them for drugs. And she was just crushed. And she said she was writing about it in her journal. And at the time she chose to hope that something better would happen. And so, you know, I just think about that and I'm like, I can't imagine how you would have that kind of strength, but she keeps going back to the fact that you have to have hope, you have to be able to set goals and you have to be, be able to see beyond your current circumstances. Mm -hmm. It's hard to talk about that. Uh, you, you've done very eloquently, very It's so very hard to talk about that. Yeah, thanks for that story. And, you know, that really ties into what you talk a great deal about in the book, and that is resilience. And I'm interested in hearing more about what you define as resilience and what role it plays in persons escaping um, the curb, if you will. I just think that you can't be resilient, and especially after talking with Rose. I mean, she's lived it. And and you can't be resilient if you don't have a way to see beyond what your current circumstances are. And so the people around you 
have to be able to point you in that direction. And a lot of times if you are depressed or if you have any kind of mindset that keeps you from seeing past your circumstances, you're not going to think that there's hope or you're not going to think that you could set a goal and achieve it. That's why it's important to have people around who can help you stay objective or help being that daily reminder that yes, you can do this. I think in order to be resilient, you just have to have those people there. And as adults, I think it's really important that we are aware of that. And as we're raising our own kids, that we understand how important that whole aspect of unconditional love is and how important it is to make sure that they know that whatever is happening right this very minute doesn't have to be the way it always stays. Right. So how do we go about creating a climate that promotes resilience for young people and even adults with mental illness? Mm-hmm. I think just this sounds really sappy, but it's like just be kind to people. You know, everybody has their own stuff that they're dealing with and you don't know what's going on in their mind or what they've been dealing with and it's easy sometimes to get impatient with people or to get frustrated or do whatever I'm always trying to check myself and think okay so I know how I feel when you know like when I'm hungry or when I'm having a bad day or whatever and I would like want somebody to give me a little bit of grace but you know that's one thing so just a very basic just be kind to people but the second thing is is just understand that people want to be noticed even if they don't say so. Mm-hmm. Even just like, hi, how you doing? How's your day going? Simple things like that go such a long way. And then finally, if you have a youth in your life that you know doesn't have a good, solid mentor or um, somebody that he can or she can rely on, just reach out to them and be their friend and take a moment to notice them and ask them how things are going and just check in on them all the time so that that relationship can somehow be something that they can grasp onto and really feel like they are important and what they have to think is important because that's where I think you know we have so such a high suicide rate among young people. They don't ever feel like they can get past what it is they're dealing with at the time, and they don't have anybody that's encouraging them and telling them, yes, you can. Shall we ask the question of what what does healing mean to you, Susan? What does healing mean to you? What does healing mean to me? I think it's transformational. I think it's going from feeling like there is no hope to feeling like I can do this and I'm in a good place and people love me and I can love people. Mm-hmm. All of those things. It's just, like I said, it's transformational. Wonderful. You definitely speak to hope quite a bit in, in the book and here during the interview. And so you see hope as really a source of transformation in the life of Absolutely. Susan, are there any uh, unanswered prayers in your life that you'd like to, to raise? I would just pray that that people just pause pause when they want to be critical of, of a kid or of anyone who commits a crime. Um, like I said, I'm, I've been the victim of a crime, and it wasn't fun. And, and I was glad that my 
my person had to, you know, be held accountable. And that's very important as a victim. I think that a lot of people are victims in these circumstances. There are no winners. And I think that that victims need their own set of passionate people working with them to help them through that. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to minimize that. So when it comes to prayer, I just think that this whole this whole situation of of people who um, are at risk and who just seem to be almost um, condemned to this life of negative, you know, I just I just wish that we could somehow change all of that. Mm-hmm. I'd like to pray in okay. that. Yeah, loving Father, we thank you for this gift of the resources, the resilience you've given us in our lives to carry on the calling you've placed in our hearts. Thank you for Susan and her ministry in jails and prisons and education and most recently in her consulting career and ask that through her and through us and through all who are listening that we might uh, see to it that no child is kicked to the curb, no person is left behind and that all who are hurting and and invisible might have someone see and address their need through the love of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So one of my big takeaways of this interview, Eric, is how Dr. Lockwood, Susan mentioned the major factor of resilience and the importance of having at least one adult in the lives of youth who can encourage them and help them build this resilience. The story she shared of uh, the young girl she called Rose was uh, especially impactful for me. This Rose moving from being the daughter of a a drug-addicted, imprisoned man to actually educating prisoners herself and having a tremendous success with that. Mm -hmm. For me, I'm not really close to anyone who's been in jail, been in prison. It's just a whole nother life, right? Um, That is a struggle. You know, people who are imprisoned could be decades. It's really good to know people like Susan are walking alongside these folks and providing hope and, you know, recognizing the healing that comes from hope. The thing I really took away was how much Susan wants their lives to be fully restored. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think for some people, it's like if you've been to prison, you've always got some sort of mark against you, mm-hmm. right? There's there's something wrong that you can't fully restore. But Susan is very adamant that uh, these folks are serving for a purpose and they should be able to come out uh, with an education, yeah. right? With uh, job opportunities, to be mm-hmm. respected for what they've been through. Yeah. And uh, I really appreciate that about this interview. Yeah, I think one point she made was that uh, sometimes people don't recognize that, you know, somebody gets arrested and sent to prison, they don't realize that well over 90% of them are going to return to society. And if we want them to come out and not commit more crimes and not 
become homeless and a burden on society, we need to invest in their rehabilitation. Absolutely. And it's a lot less money to invest in rehabilitation than in incarceration. That's exactly right. Our next episode will be the final episode of season one. Yes. we Our goal when we started this year was to have 20 episodes in a year. Yeah. Um, we are at that point in this episode. Yeah. So it's a chance to us to look back uh, and see where we've been and what we've done. And mm-hmm. It's been a really good year, Tony. It's been a wonderful year. Yeah. It's the travels we've we've had with our guests and uh, the topics we've covered and the ground we've broken mm-hmm. so far and it's only going to get better tony our show has come to a close now is the time to ask for five star reviews please scroll to the bottom of our podcast homepage, click on five stars then click on write a review help us reach more people seeking emotional healing and the hope of faith thanks again for your support of revealing voices Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help. A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com. It's good when you're reading a professional's work and it doesn't sound too wonky. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I hate wonk. Right. Yeah, wonk is not good. <laughs>